There's a lot being said right now about politics in the media. Most of it because, of course, there's an election coming up. In fact, early voting's already started in many places. And uh, along with that, there's a closely followed race in Georgia. Some of you are aware of this, where former Georgia football star Herschel Walker is up against the pastor of Martin Luther King's uh, church, former church, uh, and Ralph Warnock. And Ralph Warnock is the incumbent senator. And both candidates in the past couple of weeks have faced surprise announcements with Walker facing charges of hypocrisy because it is being charged he is not the conservative on social issues that he is claiming to be, particularly in his personal life. And Warnock is facing charges that his church evicted tenants from some apartments that it owns, although there's some question whether the church owns the apartments or Warnock owns the apartments. What do you think about a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus, but after learning that his tenants in his rental units cannot pay their rent, evicts them from their homes? Well, that's not a new problem. Throughout the centuries, there have been thousands of examples of people struggling to pay rent and being evicted from their homes. The problem didn't begin in Georgia, and it certainly didn't begin with the Warnock campaign. In fact, this is not just a problem of politicians. In the Christian world, some have bought into Financial Peace University. One large church out of Charlotte, in fact, offers this free for any of their members who want to take the classes. This organization is run by popular radio host Dave Ramsey. Earlier this year, Ramsey noted on his radio show, by the way, uh, when Rush Limbaugh was still around, Dave Ramsey was number three most listened to radio show in the United States. Uh, at, earlier this year, Ramsey noted it's not wrong to raise rent costs on tenants who cannot afford to pay. After evicting some of his own tenants, Ramsey commented, I didn't displace this person. The marketplace did. The economy did. The ratio of income that they earned to their housing expense displaced them. Regardless of what you think about Dave Ramsey, I've mentioned some of my own concerns before, this situation, I'm just telling you, is a minefield for believers. And let me tell you why. The world is watching. The world is paying attention to what Christians do, particularly with their possessions. Go do a Google search on Dave Ramsey, and what you find is, after all the ads the company buys, to put it near the top of Google searches, you find articles about this situation. And what you find is that the world is outraged by it. The world is outraged at Dave Ramsey. It's not upset that he's rich. It's, it's not upset that he's a businessman. It's upset because they believe him to be stingy. One person commented on Twitter, quote, I wonder how much Dave Ramsey would have charged for the feeding of the multitude, the miracle of the loaves and fishes. I mean, supply and demand and, and everything. Well, that was one of the nicer comments, one of the few that I could actually read in, in a sermon. Most people, most of the uh, unbelievers know enough Bible and they know enough about Jesus to see through this for what it is. Just as stinginess, this greed. In fact, this is not just a problem with wealthy American media personalities. One of the sins we commit the most, and I'll just tell you, I'm as guilty as anyone here, 
is the sin of stinginess. Read through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You'll find that the believers there in the early church struggled with this sin of stinginess. The problem in Corinth was that they had money. They had a lot of money. Many believers in other places did not, particularly in Jerusalem. They were in deep poverty. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to give some of what they had. He didn't ask them for all, just give some of what they had to help support their fellow Christians in other places who were struggling financially. And the Corinthians were just basically refusing to do that. Let me just tell you the problem in Corinth, one of the problems was stinginess. And we have the potential of that problem ourselves. We are sinners, right, who've been saved out of our sin to Christ. We have already put off the old man. We are being renewed in the spirit of our minds. And we have already put on the new man. That's happened at salvation. That's already taken place. But part of being renewed in the spirit of our mind is learning Christ. You'll remember that I mentioned to you that verse 20 is kind of the center of Paul's argument. You have not so learned Christ. This is not how you are to be. And I'm kind of taking that negative statement and I'm flipping it into a positive statement. How have I learned Christ? And one of the things I learned in Christ is not to be stingy. Part of being in Christ is walking away from old man behaviors. The old man's dead. He was put off at the cross. At our salvation, he's gone. The new man's alive. But we put off old man behaviors. We're to live as we are. So being generous like Jesus should be part of our Christian life. So consider with me, number one, our possessions should be directly in proportion to the economy of work. I'm going to kind of begin back kind of where Paul is arguing. We're going to tear this verse apart just a little bit. I believe there's an inherent godliness to work. He says in the middle of the sentence, see what he says, let him labor, a believer should labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. God has designed that we tire with work. We should be working to the point of being tired. In fact, the word labor here means to grow weary with toil. It's likely a reference to manual labor. Hard work. And if you'll notice the modifying phrase here, working with his hands, can you kind of think of what Paul did? He was he worked with leather. He was a tent maker. He worked with his hands. He's kind of thinking about the way he lived, manual work. And it's part of a life that God desires for his people. And the emphasis here through the manual labor is that the work makes you tired. The word is translated weary. This is how Jesus was when he reached Jacob's well in John 4. He later is going to meet the woman of Samaria there. He's wearied. He's labored. Paul uses this term for farmers who work in the fields. They, they actually work to the point as to bring fatigue. And, and by the way, it doesn't just have to be manual labor. On a couple of occasions, the Apostle Paul applies this word that we think of labor to exhaustion to people who labor, who minister 
in the word of God. So there's a spiritual labor that brings you to exhaustion. Certain people, pastors, others, are to work hard at understanding the word of God. I've always been a little concerned when, and I've actually seen this happen one time, it was always a sermon illustration when I was a boy, of the pastor who stands up in church, takes his, uh, his sermon, rips it out of his notebook, holds it all up, wads it up, throws it away and says, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit wants me to preach a different sermon. You know, he closes his Bible and then he po starts pontificating. That makes me nervous. What, what God wants uh, pastors to do is labor in the Word. And what he wants believers to do is labor to the point of exhaustion. We should grow tired from our labor. In fact, the word labor here is an imperative verb, meaning it's a command for us from God. It's not a mere suggestion here. God says work, tiring work. And the work should be in terms of that thing which is good. We could say it's honest work. It means we should invest our energy into labor that's good, not into labor that's not good. Now, what kind of labor would you consider to be not good? The word good here means beneficial, something that actually benefits. Not just you, but I would say probably the community in which you live. And I would say sinful things would be a good example of labor that's not good, right? I mean, it's hard for a drug dealer to say, the Bible says I should work hard. So I work very hard at dealing drugs. I mean, unless you're a pharmacist, right? I know pharmacy can be exhausting work. But if you're, if you're a, a pharmacist on the street, uh, per se, uh, that's not the kind of labor we're talking about here. That's bad labor, right? That's not the good kind. I would say the same thing with like investment fraud. Uh, that would be bad labor, not the kind of labor we're talking about. But there may be non-sinful things that also is labor that would not be included here as being particularly beneficial. So while we're talking about the fact that God wants us to work, I think it's helpful for a moment just to step aside and say, what kind of work qualifies as honest or good work? And if you remove sinful things from the equation, okay, criminal enterprise, all that kind of thing, what, what other things might we put there? I actually spent some time today really meditating on what kind of work is not beneficial work. Truly, it's not beneficial to society. And I was thinking, what kind of jobs would I not take? And I was thinking, maybe the adult beverage industry? I, I just don't think I would do that as a believer. I'm not going to work in that industry. I, when I was um, in college, right before I got married, I worked at a country club. And I only worked there because I got to golf for free. And it was a really nice golf course. But uh, one of the jobs I had was to serve people food. And I told them when I took the job, I will not serve alcohol. I'm just not going to do it. And, and there were a couple of times where their little bartender, and I was one of the few people over the age of 21, you know, so uh, you have to be a certain age, I guess, to do this. And, and they would pressure me, Matt, you, we need somebody. To, you don't have to mix drinks. You're just putting them on the table. Can't you do that? And I would say, no, I'm not going to serve the adult beverages. I just don't do that. I think that's probably a good example of something that, qualifies as not being honest, beneficial labor. It's labor, but I don't know that it qualifies as beneficial labor. And then I was thinking, anything that harms people, I probably wouldn't work in the tobacco industry. I don't think I would do that. I think before we had a full understanding that tobacco was harmful for people, I, a lot of believers did work in that industry. I, I'm not 
casting any kind of aspersion. I'm not throwing stones at them. I'm just saying now that we know it's it's really harmful for your health. I don't think I would do that. I don't think that's beneficial for people. And then I came up with maybe some other things and I'm just not sure about, and I'll just throw them out to you. You can kind of wrestle with it in your own mind. But I was maybe the entertainment industry. I don't know that I would go into that. I find it really particularly fascinating that in, in surveys being done right now, many high school students, their number one ideal job is in entertainment. They all want to work in the entertainment industry. And, and there's a lot of things that go under the entertainment industry. And, and that would be like making video games or, or participating in sports. You know, sports is supposed to be entertaining. And, and I think probably even maybe the sports field, if I had a lot of athletic gifts, I don't know that that would be something beneficial. Do you think it's really beneficial for you to have a job that requires you to work every Sunday for about 35 or 40 weeks out of the year? I don't know that that would be a good thing for me and my family. So when you're thinking about through things that may not be beneficial, I, I would say this is probably not where I'm going to invest myself and my time. But things that are beneficial, well, there's a lot of blue-collar jobs that we kind of look down on in our society that are really beneficial. In fact, I would say are really important. Farming is a good example. Um, we need farmers. Uh, we probably don't need them around here. <laughs> we don't have a lot of farms around here. But there are places, Florida, California, we need farm, farmers. Um, I'm thankful for farmers who are able to go into those fields and pick the fruits that we enjoy in our grocery stores. That's good, honest work. Industry, people who make clothes, people who build uh, in factories, build washing machines. Those things are all, it's all good, honest labor. The people who work on roads, uh, you know, I'm glad the roads are there. What kind of tires would you have if we all try to drive around on on just uh, whatever is available, you know, just on the on the uh, grass, it would be very difficult. And then I thought white collar jobs, businessmen, finance, professions like law and medicine, um, all sorts of jobs like that, even politics. These are all beneficial occupations and professions. And God has ordained that our work, if you understand, this is our job. God wants us to work. That's inherent. It's godly to work. Then our work determines our professions. Look again at the text, right? Don't, don't be stealing, but rather labor so that you may have. Just stop right there. Now, the term have means to possess something. And this could mean something personal. It could, remember, it could be referring to personal property, like rental units. You can own a house and rent it out. That could be something that you own. It could refer to personal wealth. I, I think uh, some examples of things people owned. It says in the New Testament, John the Baptist owned a camel hair coat. Now, I don't know that his camel hair coat is a lot like what men buy a camel hair coat today. I think they probably aren't the same. But John the Baptist had a camel hair coat. Jesus said, foxes, well, they have holes in the ground. And in the New Testament, there are lots of things people owned, houses and orchards and vineyards, farm animals. And if you'll notice then the conjunction that links this together, right? So don't steal, but rather labor, working with your hands, a thing which is good, that. Do you see the word that 
in your text. It's a conjunction here. It's actually the word hinna, and it's a clause of purpose, I believe, in this statement. It's a purpose clause, and what he's saying is all of this is done so that or in order that something else may happen. So what he's really saying is this is occurring. You're working hard for this purpose so that you will have something. So the connection of work to possessions, I think, is a pretty legitimate connection. I'm doing work for this reason, so that I'll have something. And by the way, in a few minutes, we'll note why we have it. But I'm working in order to possess. Now, if that's what God has ordained, stealing then destroys that God-ordained or, or uh, designed order. God has designed an order. You work so you can possess. If you steal, you're, you're breaking that. You're harming that God-designed order, which is why Paul says, stop stealing. Now, stealing creates the I have situation that God did not ordain, right? If I steal it, I didn't work and earn that as a possession I took it even though it wasn't mine. It was not wealth generated through work or investment. How does the thief acquire his wealth? Well, it's not through hard work. It's through stealing. In fact, this is our word klepto, right? He's a kleptomaniac. He takes things by theft. And this is a direct violation of God's moral law. Go back to your Ten Commandments. He says, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal. And the result of theft is that possessions are unrighteously obtained. It's claiming for oneself something that is another person's by right. That's why it's immoral. Do you like somebody stealing from you? Do you enjoy that thought of someone taking something that's yours? Right. And that's why it's immoral. It's wrong to do. Stealing has no place in the believer's life. We should no longer be living that way. Paul says, don't steal any longer. It has no place in your life. God gives you a designed way of earning, of acquiring possessions. You work hard so that you may have, so that you may have, you may possess, but not through stealing, through working hard. So I think the application would be keep your hands of something that isn't yours. What do we call that? The five-finger discount, right? Don't do that. Jesse Matsuoka, he owns a sushi, sushi restaurant in Sag Harbor. He, he was uh, a longtime customer invited him over to their house to eat. He thought, that's pretty cool. You know, he's, he owns this restaurant, and um, really high-end restaurant, and some of his customers said, why don't you come over to our house? We'll cook for you. And so he got into this family's home and he got into their kitchen and they opened the cabinets and immediately he recognized in their kitchen cabinets dishes from his restaurant. Here's what he said. Over the years, we carefully sourced gorgeous handcrafted sake cups from Japan and they were distinctive. When the cabinet opened, I saw years worth of multiple styles, our entire collection on her shelves, end quote. New York City restaurant Bowery Meat 
used to have steak knives with their logo on them. I've never been to this restaurant. I guess it's pretty high end until they became collector's items and people began stealing them. And I think this is actually the funniest story I read on this. Uh, pens bearing restaurant names are constantly taken. You know, they ballpoint pens. And they're generally chalked up to marketing costs. Uh, I used to sell advertising, specialty items, and pens was one of those things. You kind of want people to take those. But, but Jin An, an owner partner of an East Village Hawaiian restaurant, was surprised to find his Mont Blanc pen engraved with his name missing after offering it to a table for those to sign their check. He said, quote, I explained that it was a personalized pen. I received it as a gift. And at first, they all pretended as if they hadn't seen it. You, you want to give customers the chance to save face. I wasn't going to let them walk off with my pen, though. So I, I said I probably dropped it at their table. Eventually, a woman removed it from her bag and apologized, saying she mistook it for her own because she'd had a few glasses of wine. That's stealing. Don't take it. It's not yours. Keep your hands off. Now, just as God has ordained that I work for what I have, he has also ordained that what I have, he has given to me for the purpose of my being generous with others. This is point number two. Our possessions are purposed for generosity. That is, we should be generous with our possessions. Go back to that henna clause. Remember the, remember the word that? It's, it's a purpose statement, in order that or so that. So that you may have, what's the next part of that phrase? So that you may have to what? So that you may have to what? To enjoy all the things that God has given to me. So that I might have and I might say, look at the bounty that I've received from the Lord. What does he say? So that you may have to, to give. That's what he says. You know, we did a very poor job. I'm going to act like I'm at camp now. And, uh, you know, they do a camp. Is that as good as you can do? We can do better. So that you may have to yeah. give. Right, give. Okay. And I, and I think it's important that we say that because this is the part of the sermon that bothers me the most. And I'm just going to guess that this is going to be a part of the sermon that's going to bother you the most. Because, because what Paul is saying here, and I tried my best to figure out a way around this, is that God has given you those positions that you worked hard for. Remember, laboring to being exhausted so that you may have? He gave those possessions to you so that you may give to others. Generosity is the purpose of our possessions. This is the end of the purpose clause, so that I may have in order that I may give. And can I just tell you, folks, that makes all of this an eternal value, doesn't it? I mean, what do you have right now that you're going to have 100 years from now? I mean, you're going to be around 100 years from now. Not here, probably. I, I mean, it's possible that we have infants in the nursery who may be around 100 years from now. That's possible. But looking at all of you, I, I don't think that's likely. And I can tell you, it's not going to happen for me. I'm not going to be around 100 years from now. I just know that to be true. And so who's going to have what you possess then? Who's going to own your car? Who's going to wear your jeans? I, I just read recently an archaeologist found jeans that are like 125 years old or something, and they're Levi's. 
and they're going up for auction and people are going to pay hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars for these old jeans that you can go down to the store and buy brand new. But somebody's going to wear, and by the way, it was apparently a pretty big fella. You're going to have to be pretty big to buy these jeans. But somebody's going to wear these jeans that this other person wore 100 years ago or more. Well, whoop-de-doo, right? I mean, come on, it's just silly. Nobody even knows the guy who owned them. It's not going to always be ours. And it shouldn't be ours now. I don't mean to take away the idea of personal property or possessions, but managing our possessions should be with giving in mind. The root word here is, is didomy, which means to share what we have with others. Or sometimes the word impart is used in translation. We impart our goods to another's benefit. So Jesus said it this way. If you own two coats, if you own two coats, what should you do with one of those coats? It's funny, by the way, Jesus doesn't say give both of your coats away. He doesn't say that. What should you do with one of those coats? You keep one coat for yourself. What do you do with the other one? You give it away. You give that coat to someone who needs that coat. And by the way, you think about the same thing in terms of spiritual things. You have a spiritual truth. Someone needs that truth. What do you do with it? You give it away. Our generosity, the benefits that we have, are so that we can now give to others, see the end of the phrase, to him that has need. Our generosity should be to those who are in want. Now I need to stop for a moment and clarify what need means. Because that's clarified in Scripture. In fact, you don't need to turn over there, but in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, provides an example of when someone doesn't need help. This passage in 2 Thessalonians 3 refers to a person who is able to work but unwilling to do so. He can do it, he just doesn't want to. It's not in reference to someone who's willing to work but incapable of working. We would think of a person like that who has a true disability or has a, has a real handicap, right? That kind of person may be un, unable to work, incapable of working, and, and now it says, okay, that's a person who's in need. I, I was in a restaurant not too long ago. One of the workers had an obvious handicap. I'm very handicapped. And, you know, it just brought me great joy to have a conversation with that young lady. Here's a person who's really handicapped, and be beside the handicap, saying, I want to work. And I thought, that that's a blessing from the Lord, just to see that. To see somebody saying, I'd like to have a job and be able to do something productive. But refusal to work means the church actually should refuse generosity. Our generosity, it says here, I, I now possess this to give to the needy. To people who gen genuinely have needs. Our generosity is for them alone. It's for the guy without the coat. We have to give to the guy without the coat, one of our coats. And for the needy, 
we should give to meet that need. And if a person isn't needy, then I don't have a responsibility, I think, biblically to give him anything. Um, I'm going to tell you that in our country, where the poorest of the poor is rich uh, in relation to the rest of the world, you just don't see a lot of need like, like you would in other places. There is genuine need here. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. There is need. Uh, there are places you can go and you can find very needy people. But much of that need is a, is a refusal to work. But I have been in places in this world where I have seen real need. And when you see that, your heart should just go out to those people. I don't know how many of you travel internationally. If you ever have that opportunity. But when you go overseas, friends, we are so blessed in the United States. We have so much money here. So much money. I think China is, is the second wealthiest country in the world, and they're not even close to us. The number of billionaires we have, friends, the number of millionaires we have, and probably the number of millionaires we have in our church. In our church. It just pales in comparison to the rest of the world. And you go overseas, and you see what, that some of these people, they live with nothing. I, I'll never forget being in Africa. And see, having my driver, who, who was dirt poor. In fact, he, he was driving me around in his car and his battery went out. And I see this man almost coming to tears thinking, how am I going to pay for my battery? And I looked at him and I said, oh, I'm paying for your battery. I mean, you've been picking me up all week. We're, we're going to figure out. It took over an hour to figure out how to get money out of an ATM in Africa. And this guy's sitting in the car. And I said, we're going to figure this thing out. We're going to get you a new battery. He said it's going to be like $150. Did you know the batteries over in Africa are more expensive than they are here? No, this is ridiculous, but we're buying you a new battery. We're going to find the best battery we can find. We're going to put it in your car. What else? What other needs do you have, buddy? I mean, what else? At this point, I'm ready to just empty my pockets. I, I didn't have any money with me. I felt terrible, so I'm taking money out of the bank. This guy was so thankful for that battery. But we were driving around and we saw a woman and she was sitting by the side of the road and she had kind of a loose fitting dress on and she had three or four children sitting beside her uh, along the side of the road. It's not a curbed road. It's kind of an, it was just kind of an old road that you'd have in another country. And, and she had those kids kind of gathered up underneath her, her dress, little children. And I said, now tell me about her. What would she be? And he goes, oh, she's not from this country. She's from uh, another African nation. He goes, she's a refugee. And I said, now, so tell me about her. He goes, oh, that's that person. She, she's a beggar. She has nothing. And all I was, I was just thinking, I wish I had money on me right now. I'd make that woman the richest woman in town. I'd have no trouble doing that. I would love to do that. Couldn't do it. I was stuck. And when you see need like that, your heart should go out. Now, we have folks like that. We do have people like that in our country. It's, it's unusual to find. But, but friends, that's why God has given us these things, is to be a blessing to others. And for the needy, we should give so as to meet that need, to alleviate the suffering. And it creates a scenario, by the way, that helps us eliminate unnecessary stealing. Do you know why most people steal? I'm not talking about in a first world country. I'm talking about a third world country. Do you know why they steal? Because they can't feed their families. That's why they steal. And I think if I can give to people who don't have what they need, then praise God, 
it will eliminate that need to steal. The poor man robs to feed his family, but if I feed his family for him, it eliminates that incentive. Do you know what this brings out to me? The point of the passage, it's always been, okay, don't steal. And and that's true. That's here. That's a command. Don't be a thief. But do you know what the real emphasis, I think, of this passage is? Be generous. Be generous. Do Do you know when we support our missionaries, do you know what they do? They go to those places where those poor people are, and they create an environment in those places that help those people. We, through our support of them, we help them do that. We, we can't necessarily do that directly, but they can do that for us. They stand in our place. They are, in a way, our lieutenant, right? They stand in our place to reach those people with the gospel first, but also to help them in their needs. When we see people around here who have needs, real genuine needs, we have a deacon's fund. And I have watched church people pour money into that deacon's fund. And you know one of the blessings that the deacons have that I have is seeing somebody who has real need and just saying, here's some money that'll meet that need. And and often, of course, no, no, no. No, it's okay. Take the money you need it. And it's just the blessing of being able to meet that need. Now I've had people try to steal money from us. All right, they're just they're just uh uh, manipulating charlatans, okay, we have a solution. We've come up with a plan of how to differentiate true need from false need. But where we've had true needs, we've been able to meet those needs. The Deacons Fund, it's one of the biggest blessings that we have as a church. And I tell you, friends, I wish we could do more. Now, we live in a very prosperous area. Carrie, uh, a couple of weeks ago, was announced uh, in the news that Carrie is the most a robust, the most uh, recession-proof economy in the United States. It's right here. We're, we're, this, is, this is where it's at, right here. So it is kind of hard to see that around us. But where it is, we can meet that need. And we can jump right in and say, here's help for you. And, and it's because of generosity that we have. I'm not asking you to walk away from here feeling guilty. I, I mean, if you're a thief, you need to stop stealing, okay? <laughs> All right, just stop that, All right. Um, you don't need that candy bar anyway, so just pay for it. Okay, I, we all we all understand. But but what I really want you to do is say, how can I be generous with what God has given to me? How can I use what the blessings God has given to me to help people who are truly needy? How can I do that? And if you start thinking about that, I think God will open opportunities for you. And by the way, if you come across an opportunity, please let me know. We would love to jump in and help people who really do have needs. Because down deep, the lesson here is be generous like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture where we can learn, where we can grow from it. Help us to be generous people, 